Our God in heaven, we do indeed trust that you are here, that you are alive, that you have overcome death and overcome the grave and made your presence available to us. And that is the reason we are able to gather here to worship, to celebrate, to rejoice at all times. And so I pray that you um, speak into our hearts, show us what you need to, to show us today, remind us that you are alive and well and that we have hope in you. We need you, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So many of you were with us on Friday where we remembered and contemplated the darkest day of creation, the darkest day in all of history, when the Son of God became a human being and took on darkness of every kind that plagued all of creation, that plagued all of humanity. He took every kind of darkness and sin and death onto his body, let it do the worst to him and kill him. And they put our Lord's lifeless, cold body in a tomb. Three days later, some women who had followed Jesus around, and who trusted his teaching, who put their hope that he was going to bring rescue and hope, they went to that graveside. They went to that tomb to mourn. They went carrying despair. They went to grieve the loss of their Lord and their friend. These papers are going to be all over the place and we're just going to be okay with that. They went to grieve. They have a place for that grief, a place for that despair. And they were going to go put that there. And when they got there, though, they discovered that this large stone that no human being was supposed to be able to move had been rolled away. And they responded and, and, and were wondering what was going on. And they encountered Jesus. And it says their first response was fear and great joy. Their first response of the resurrection is to respond with joy. Later, Jesus encounters his disciples multiple times. And when he encounters them, he shows up to them. And the thing, announcement he gives to them, first words are, peace unto you. Peace unto you. And so we see right on the first day of the resurrection that two immediate effects of the resurrection are joy that can be experienced now and peace that can be experienced now. And so we're going to move into Philippians and read that 25 to 30 years later, one who was an enemy of Jesus was able to be in prison because he was following Jesus. And he wrote these words from prison. We're in chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. It's on that sheet if you have it. Otherwise, feel free to open your Bibles. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And friends, the point that I want to drive home today is that the resurrection has made it possible not only possible, but even made it a command that requires us, puts us in a state and a condition that requires us to rejoice and to have peace. And so I want to unpack how it is the case that even in a world filled with chaos and violence, even in a world that is filled with despair still, we see things to grieve, that through the resurrection of Jesus, we have ability and the right and the call to still rejoice and to have peace. And that's made possible because Jesus at the resurrection was able to overcome our threefold enemies that are thieves to our joy, which is sin, Satan, and death. So that's what we're going to unpack today and this Easter. And so uh, the first thing I want to talk about 
is that the resurrection makes it possible to rejoice at all times and have peace no matter the circumstances. So let's see in this passage here, Paul writes to them, rejoice. It is a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not like you should try to be happy. He's telling them to rejoice. Now, I don't know if you've been around people that don't like it when you're kind of in a bad mood, but when they tell you, just be happy, what does that do? It makes you not be happy. And yet Paul's like, no, I said that you should rejoice. And he says, I will say it again. Rejoice. It's a double command. He's saying it twice. And he says it should happen all the time. And this is coming from a guy who's in prison. Dank, nasty, Roman prison, no freedom. And yet he is commanding them to rejoice. And so you have to presume he himself is living with joy. And so what is joy? It's kind of like happiness and that it can be felt. It can be experienced. It can be an emotion that we feel. It's a sense of contentment and of satisfaction for sure. But unlike happiness, it's not dependent on circumstances. It's more a state of being that we are able to have an experience from the heart, a state of contentment, a state of satisfaction, a state of having enough, a state of delight. And of course it is felt and is emotional, but it can be even experienced even in times of grief because of the resurrection. And so Paul can command us to rejoice. And this is not just an internal heart level rejoicing, but it is something that is manifested in action. And thus it can be chosen. It is no doubt that when he writes this letter, he's writing to a group of Christians, to the church. And he's not just saying, go feel some joy out by yourself. He's telling us to do what we're doing right now, to gather together, to celebrate. And that the conditions of the resurrection, the resurrection has made it possible in this world to gather together to celebrate no matter the circumstances. And then he gets to another command. He says, don't be anxious. Don't worry. And again, if you are in a state of anxiety and stress and you're just trying to share your feeling of stress and anxiety, what's the worst thing someone can say to you? Stop worrying. Be at peace. (laughs) And yet that's exactly what Paul does. He feels the confidence to say, don't worry and instead have peace. When you stop worrying, the peace of God is going to transcend all circumstances. It doesn't matter what we experience around us. And what he's saying is this peace, like the joy that we were promised, is also a state in our heart. It's also a state of being that we are called to participate in and live into. It is also a deep level sense of security, of stability, of wholeness, of having enough And that is also made possible by the resurrection of Jesus. And so he's saying this also like joy, it is an internal experience of deep peace that comes from the resurrection. And yet it expresses itself in action. The action of prayer, the action of giving gratitude and practicing gratitude, and the action of being gentle in conflict, he says. Let your gentleness be known to all. And when you have a deep sense of peace and of security and of stability, you are able to engage in the conflict of the world with a spirit of gentleness and of peace and without a sense of conflict. And he's, this is a, a moral obligation to choose it no matter how you feel and no matter your circumstances. And it's an obligation that we are able to live into Because the resurrection has defeated the enemies of sin, Satan, and death that would otherwise rob our joy. 
The enemies of sin, Satan, and death that would otherwise rob our joy were defeated by the cross and resurrection and therefore make it possible, not only possible, but a command to live a life of joy and live a life of peace, to fight for it, because that is the state of the world that we are living in now and participating in with Jesus. So let's talk about how he has overcome that through the resurrection, he overcame the enemies of sin and of Satan. And so it starts with the foundation of biblical joy and biblical peace are rooted in the presence of God. He makes creation and he starts with chaos. He's hovering over the waters and it's darkness. But through his presence, he gives order. He gives a place for all of creation. He puts everything where it's supposed to go and he allows it to have what the Bible calls shalom where things exist in peace and in harmony and without conflict. Everything has its order. Everything has its place. And God himself is able to rest in creation. And it also is a place of flourishing where he enables joy and multiplication and fruitfulness and, and full delight to happen because his presence is there. Prolific Old Testament scholar John Walton says the main point of the creation narrative is to say that the world is the place for God's presence. It is made for God's presence to dwell and to fill that space. And before the fall, there was only joy and only peace because God was able to peacefully walk in the garden. His presence was readily available and Adam and Eve had everything that they need. But they have rebelled against that presence. They looked right at the presence of God made available to them, the joy and the peace that were, he was able to provide them, and they said no thanks. They chose to trust their way. And what happens? They were cut off from God. They were separated by that sin. And then they introduced then that power of sin into the world. Sin is not just a list of mistakes. It is a whole power that cuts us off from God. Glimling Rutledge, a scholar that wrote the book Crucifixion, writes it like this. She says, to be in sin, biblically speaking, means something very much more consequential than wrongdoing. It means being catastrophically separated from the eternal love of God. It means to be on the other side of an impassable barrier of exclusion from God's heavenly banquet. It means to be helplessly trapped inside one's own worst self miserably aware of the chasm between the way we are and the way God intends us to be. It means the continuation of the reign of greed, cruelty, rapacity, and violence throughout the world. This is the state of power that we are under, that all of humanity was enslaved under, separated from the only source of deep level joy and peace in the world cut off from his presence it is impossible to experience joy because when we suffer we feel like we are abandoned and alone and so god refused to leave us that way and he began to bring his presence back but all manifestations of his presence after the fall revealed that he was still distant he was over at that temple over there you could only go get his presence again by means of the priest and by offering sacrifices and that was a continual reminder that they were not quite delighted in as human beings, but they had lived instead in a sense of shame. That they were 
threatened to be abandoned, that they were cut off from God and there was no way, no power in themselves that they could grab hold of that presence again. And so every time they offered a sacrifice, every time they walked by a temple, they were reminded of the shame that they are in. And so why it's a thief of joy, sin is, is because it tells us that we might be alone. It gives us a sense of abandonment and of isolation. But then God moved and he became a man. And when he went to that cross, the cross holds a mirror up to the depth of that sin. When you experience the, when you see the cross, the cross holds a mirror up and says, however bad you thought it was, it's so bad that it requires this level of death to, to cure it. The son of God had to die a degrading death to reveal the, the evil of sin that plagued and sat on top of humanity. And so when he did that, though, he took every form of sin. We talked about Friday, every form of sin and darkness. He took it onto his very body, let it do the worst to him and exhausted all of its power. And when he raised from the dead, he revealed sin as the spectacle that it was unable to hold him down. And what's the first thing we see happen in the resurrection accounts? The temple veil is torn symbolizing an unleashing of God's presence that was now going to be available again through the resurrection of Jesus, where sin would no longer be that final barrier between us and God. Instead, it's made it possible for God's presence to fill us again. And that gets us back to the Philippians passage, where he says, rejoice what? In the Lord. And he says, we have peace where? In Christ. Being in the Lord and in Christ, we read that so much in the New Testament that we probably get sick of it. It just seems like theological filler. But what he, every time he uses that phrase, which is the most common phrase Paul uses to describe Christian people, not as Christians, not as the church, but as people who are in Christ, he's communicating that instead of being separated from God, we are now in perfect union with him. Not because we've done anything positive about our situation, but because he came to the full depths, let sin do its worst to him and overcame it and atoned for it on our behalf, making it possible to be in perfect union with Jesus again. And Romans 6 lays this out real well. When we get baptized, we participate in the death with Jesus and his burial. He raises us to new life and we participate in resurrection with him. We are a part of his body permanently and eternally and it's never going to be broken down because on the cross he was forgiving us for all sins of all time sins of the past and even sins to come in the future where as romans 8 says nothing can separate us from the love of god and he defeated satan as well satan which means accuser he stands before god and before our hearts accusing us saying you are not enough you are should be ashamed you don't have enough you aren't who you're supposed to be and now Jesus has defeated and exhausted Satan as well. And that's why Romans 8, he's able to shout out, who can bring a charge against God's chosen people? No one. There's no claim that can be made against us anymore. Who is able, what's able to separate us from the love of God? Nothing. We are now in Christ permanently because of his blood. And now we are, this is why we're able to now rejoice. It's because no circumstances, however bad they are, will ever be experienced alone. The worst of suffering is that it happens alone. When you experience suffering, if you think of the worst suffering in your life, the worst part about it is how isolated you feel. You sense that no one can quite grasp this. No one knows the pain I feel. They look at me, they watch me, they seem to have pity and empathy in their eyes, but they don't quite understand. 
But when Jesus dies on the cross, He shows He does understand. He participates in that suffering, has solidarity in that suffering, and for to say, in Christ you are never alone. The worst thing that could ever happen could happen, and yet He says in Matthew 28, the resurrected Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. You will never be abandoned again. And that is why we have capacity to rejoice and to be at peace and experience a sense of wholeness and harmony and gentleness and contentment because we have the only thing that could ever matter. We have him. We have God and he's not going to abandon us again. Our sin cannot get in the way of that again. But that might make us feel good right now. But we also need Jesus not just to overcome our sin and forgive us our sin, not just to defeat Satan and reveal him that he has no more power anymore. We need him to overcome death for us. We need him to overcome death. And so death is a consequence of sin. As soon as Adam and Eve sin, God, and he lists off his curses, says that we will now return to dust. Death, an intruder, and God's good creation that was supposed to be fruitful and abundant and expansive and had no sign of decay or destruction, now the life that once filled it would return to dust. And that looming threat of death just lingers over humanity from then on out. And if the big uh, message of sin is that you are not enough, the big message of death is that you don't have enough. Because we as human beings have eternity written on our hearts, and we have capacity to imagine a future. And we all, though, realize death is around us. And that our future, no matter how much security we can mount up with resources, with physical health, with, with a nice house, with everything, all of our needs met and all everything in order, we know that a lifeless, cold death is to come. A death where we will die and be alone and without anything. And so that fear, that fear drives a sense of scarcity that makes us fight with violence to acquire and do everything we can to stave off death and live in a sense of denial. And so we need God to rescue us from that final end so that when we experience good or bad right now, we know that it is not the end. It is not the final answer. And so Jesus does that. He takes death head on. And by the time of the New Testament, we see that death itself is a power because its looming threat has that effect on our attitudes and actions. It is itself its own power and its own sense of agency. But Jesus was able to overcome that death by sharing it on our behalf. Cyril of Alexandria, a Christian saint from the 400s, he writes this, when he shed his blood for us, Jesus Christ destroyed death and corruptibility. For if he had not died for us, we should not have been saved. And if he had not gone down among the dead, death's cruel empire would never have been shattered. That to be saved and rescued, to be given the conditions to be able to rejoice and to be at peace, no matter the circumstances or experience, we need to know death has been defeated. And so Jesus shares solidarity with us by taking on the punishment for our sin. The Bible says Jesus died for sin and by actually dying and being buried. It's a crucial part of our story that the king of the universe became a human being that eventually landed in a cold tomb alone. 
But three days later, the power of God rose him from the dead and vindicated him as Lord. And by doing so, revealed that death would not hold him down. It says that death has lost its power. Death has lost its sting. Death no longer has capacity, though it is present around us, and no longer has capacity to, to weigh on us and to affect us. We are able to experience the presence of death around us, knowing it is not the end. It is one step on the way to the end that in the future, our life will be made whole with Jesus. And that's where in Philippians 4, when he says, the Lord is near. It's a reminder that not only will we never be abandoned in our suffering because Jesus is with us, we are also secure against the worst that suffering and sin could do to us, which is kill us. That in the end, the Lord is near. He will return. He is alive. He is not dead. And when he returns, he will raise us to new life and we will participate in that resurrection with him. And so the resurrection of Jesus conquers those enemies of us, those enemies of God, the thieves of delight and of joy and of wholeness and of peace and unleashes the power of new creation into the world that will that may have been the first fruits in Jesus, but will be eventually brought to its completion when God makes all things new. And so out of faith and out of trusting in that hope, we can make the choice to have joy, the choice to rejoice and to live at peace and pursue and fight for peace, knowing that Jesus is going to round up those frail efforts one day and bring them into new creation with him, where we will have permanent, eternal union with God, with no more sin, no more death, no more Satan. The powers that have been broken will now no longer even be present. They will be no more. Death will be stomped out and defeated because Jesus has rescued us by the blood. We can now be confident. A pandemic and all of its fallout, all the division that we experience and the chaos we experience, we can witness it and yet be people who rejoice and who experience and express a sense of gentleness and peace even in the face of that. How much do our neighbors around us need to know that message? That they are witnessing conflict all over, but they can meet you and meet me in the neighborhood and on the street and find out that there's a way to experience this life, not in a sense of chaos and disorder and scarcity, but a sense of restful contentment and God's abundance because Christ is alive and we have everything we need in him and are enough in him. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we do indeed rejoice. We receive that peace and that joy that only your resurrection could give. There's no other action in real history, in real time, in real space that we occupy that could overwhelm and overcome these looming threats of sin, Satan, and death. And so I pray, I ask that your spirit empower us to rejoice and to have peace, even in the face of the sin and the suffering that we still experience and participate in. We need your help, Lord, to live into this resurrection. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's move into a time of communion where we experience in physical form this fellowship that we have in Jesus. That's what we do when we take communion. We are coming to the table with Jesus and, be, and being reminded that all of our lives happen at the table with Jesus. We share in his body and his blood 
knowing that we are in perfect union with him. And the passage also says that we look forward when we do this, that he is going to return one day. And so by practicing communion, we are reminding ourselves of those two sources of joy, that Jesus is with us, sharing a meal with us now by the power of his blood, and that we have permanent access to him until he comes again in the future. And so let's prepare your communion if you have it. Zoom folks, grab something to eat and drink to celebrate communion with us. Start to prepare your bread and cup if you can. It's a struggle to open these things sometimes. <laughs>